VHS code. It's too hot to work out in the garage now, and the uh, gym's still closed, so I haven't worked out in like two weeks. I feel like a soft loser. Oh, I just, uh, I do bodyweight exercises only, so I can just do those in the house. And then the only exercise is walking. I just do like 5.30. But how do you lift big weights? I am, I am a big weight. Oh, you do the handstand push-ups? Yeah, well, that's, a, that's a funny thing. The, I saw that shit with Tom Holland, and did you see that? Nah. And uh, Mysterio, Jake Gyllenhaal were doing where they put on a shirt when they were doing the handstand. I'm like, I don't think that's that hard. I bet I could do it. <laughs> so I tried when Court was in the shower the other day, and I definitely could do it. She walked out halfway through, and she was laughing at me. She made a torque shirt, when I was doing a handstand. Doing a handstand? Yeah. Yeah, I don't like, know. Like, using the wall for support, too. Oh, well, yeah, that makes a big difference. Yeah, that's not... If you're using the wall, that's not... Like, what, that's, you're not even really doing handstands. <laughs> And like that's just like doing a plank, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's not that, that's not that crazy. Oh well, I guess I'll just be a soft loser who doesn't lift weights for a little while. In the push-ups. In the push-ups. Lift yourself. That's not enough weight. Uh, you're a pretty big guy. That's a lot of weight. Push-ups are easy as hell for me. Okay. <laughs> do more. Well, yeah, I guess. I guess I'll just do push-ups nonstop. Like, I don't know, it doesn't feel like I'm actually working out when I do it. Obviously, like, I'll get out of breath, but, like, I don't feel my muscles burning at all. But I guess I could do that one, like, chest routine where you do, like, five different kinds of push-ups in one set. It seems like it makes your titties burn. (laughs) That's what you're really looking for is that titty burn? Yeah, because, like, I mean, I know you... You're working out no matter what, you know, if you're using your muscles, but, like, I when I work out... I don't believe it unless I'm like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, I don't it. know that the, the science actually backs you up on that. It has to be painful. No, it doesn't. But that's the problem I have with a lot of things in life is I can intellectualize why it's the truth, but then I, I don't um, believe it in my everyday But you still life. believe in your, like, your weird, uh, you know, space magic, your thought magic. What the hell? Yeah, I, I just feel it in my, I just, I just feel it. I got to feel it. I got to feel it thinking. out. That's what I was looking for. Yeah, power of magical thinking, chaos magic. Speaking of chaos magic, I've also, um, so there's this, uh, addicts have it a lot where you have like user dreams. Like, you know, you have dreams about using or relapsing and stuff. Mm-hmm. I get them quite a bit. Like, about um, playing World of Warcraft. Now, mine are usually about like, drinking again, getting in trouble with the cops. Basically, just like stress dreams about drinking and doing drugs and stuff. <clears throat> I had one this week or this past week where I was like falling off on heroin and like had to go to a job interview or whatever. And, um, the dream didn't like, it kind of like fell apart because, you know, as most dreams do, but I was like, you know, what if you did like a, um, like a Sasha Baron Cohen style, like, you know, gorilla camera work, 
social experiment comedy sort of thing where you actually did like go into a job interview pretending to be like all fucked up and see how it went. I mean, the thing is like most of these, depending on what job interview you're going to, a lot of these people have probably seen it. Yeah, you think so? Yeah, I mean, unless you're going to like, I don't know, the, I feel like you have to pick the right kind of job. You know what I mean? What if you push it to the extreme, like, you're like, oh, so, that is that's true. You know what I mean? Like, you don't even try to hide. Like, you. Yeah, you, I was thinking, like, you yeah, walk no, in true. with your arms still tied off. Like, you right. Know what I mean? Okay. Like, no, no, I'm with you like now. That. No matter what. Yeah, <laughs> like, just push it to the limit. Yeah, because I'm sure they've seen people come in who are just like, like, on the edge. High as fuck from, yeah. like, smoking a blunt or whatever, or, you know, clearly, like, been drinking, stuff like that. I was like, nah, we got it to the extreme. <laughs> Needle's still hanging out. <laughs> I'll try to get funding for that, I guess. I'll go to Patreon. Or uh, uh, Kickstarter. They still have Kickstarters. I need to kickstart my short film. Yeah, you can do a Kickstarter. You don't even have to produce the film. Hell yeah. Vaporware. Whatever. Fucking who cares about drugs and alcohol? I don't. The Repo um, Man does. Yeah, I guess. It's more like the Repo Man doesn't care about anything. Meet Otto. He's a clean-cut kid in a dirty business. He repossesses cars. He's a repo man. You gonna give me my car back or do I gotta go to your house and shove your dog's head down the toilet? His mission is to repossess a 64 Chevy, but hidden within its trunk. What you got in the trunk? You don't wanna look in there. Is the most important discovery in the history of our planet. Repo man. It's a mystery. Suppose you're thinking about a plate of shrimp. Suddenly somebody will say, like, plate or shrimp or plate of shrimp out of the blue. No explanation. It's a comedy. What are you doing? Don't do that. It's a chase. It's the forces of law. Marlene, I'm on my coffee break. Against the representatives of discontented youth. Against the finest minds in government. I had a lobotomy in the end. Lobotomy? Isn't that for loonies? Not at all. And they're all in pursuit of a 64 Chevy Malibu from who knows where. Blam! Eyes melt, skin explodes, everybody dead. Repo Man. The story of the ultimate Ah. repossession. Repo Man. Not just a job. It's an adventure. Oh, punk rock. Wait, no, wait. If. Sort of. No, maybe. We'll, nah. talk about, we'll talk about our... So, I used to like this movie when I was younger, and I was dumber, because I was like, oh, punk rock. But I didn't, like, think about um, really what the ethos of the movie is as compared to, like, punk rock. Or at least my experience with punk rock. Now, through the critical eyes of an adult, I realize that our director man here maybe also doesn't um, understand punk rock. Yeah, or he has a very narrow view of what it is. And we will talk about that shortly. But first, we must talk about the movie itself, I guess. Repo Man, 1984. A young punk recruited by a car repossession agency finds himself in pursuit of a Chevrolet Malibu that is wanted for a $20,000 bounty. Oh, my God. You can buy 20 Chevrolet Malibus for that. 
It has something otherworldly stashed in its trunk, though. That could be worth millions and billions. Oh, uh, I bet it's like that dude's heart from Pulp Fiction. Also, like Chevy Malibus are worth like um a lot of money now, aren't they? Yeah, but not 1984. Oh, word. So this movie came out before Pulp Fiction. <laughs> Pulp Fiction is stealing from this movie. No, this movie and Pulp Fiction are both stealing from the same older movie, which I forget what it's called. Let me pull it up. No, I'm not waiting. It's America. Oh, get back to work then. I know we are. Go die. Everybody's gonna go. We did it. it. (laughs) The government. (laughs) It kind of reminds me of um, you've seen Dracula Dead and loving it. I know you have. Um, You know the scene where Renfield is being um, followed, and he's like, "I'm betting I'm being followed. I better lose him." And he kind of just jukes left, jukes right, and goes, "Lost him." And walks forward. That I feel has been America's response to coronavirus. (laughs) Got him. Yeah, I guess fucking hell yeah, get that go economy, go United States. You gotta die, gotta die, gotta die for your government, die for your country. That shit. Not even for your country. I'm not dying for my. I'm dying for like a, to just die for the bottom line. Push the because what's gonna happen? It. I don't know. It's not. I'm not. We don't have to argue about this. Yeah, it's, it's not important. All right, the world shit. Repo Man was right. We should have gotten into the car with uh, the guy from Conan. Oh, hey, fellas, it's me. <laughs> My voice is less annoying. Yeah, I was lot... traded for a Cutlass Supreme. He's a lot better than this one. <laughs> <laughs> this film is a satire of America under the Reagan administration, consumerism, and the atomic age. It was developed by Cox, Alex Cox, our director. In <laughs> I thought it was actually developed by a penis. Or Cox, the cable communications. Mm, mine was funner. Uh, he did it in partnership with his fellow film school graduate from UCLA, independent producer Jonathan Wax and Peter McCarthy. Wow, I was going to make uh, one of the O'Bannon brothers. Ed and Charles. Ed sued the NCAA. Yes. Right, for Because they, yeah. uh, they make tons of money off of them kids. Uh, inspiration for the, for the film came from his own experience working with repossession agent Mark Lewis. It was originally conceived as a road movie. But Cox reconfigured the story to take place mostly in Los Angeles due to budgetary limits. Just and do what everybody else does and film everything in Los Angeles, but say it's in other cities. Or say it's for filming around Vancouver, really, and say it's Los Angeles. Well, that's modern times. It's Vancouver. It used to be, yeah, you just did it in the valley. And it's like, oh, boy, it's Chicago. <laughs> but uh, I actually like that it's in Los Angeles because this movie is, uh, you. this is like the part of Los Angeles you don't, generally get to see in movies especially in the 80s uh, hey, i guess you're not gonna get to see it in movies now either oh no they definitely pretend that east los angeles doesn't exist <laughs> there's no homeless problem in la nah no shanty towns Mm-mm. guess who produced this movie though or executive well, producer <laughs> who came in to really get the movie made can you guess who it was it's gonna blow your mind you won't believe it tom hanks no it's michael nesmith of the monkeys <laughs> <laughs> This film, as mentioned previously, directed by Alex Cox. Throughout his years in the industry, Alex Cox, an English writer-director, has not only proven his loyalty and integrity to cult cinema, but also his love for it. His career sort of began in 1977. He dropped out of Oxford University to study Ooh. radio, film, and TV at Bristol until graduating Ooh. in 77. Uh, seeing the difficulties in the British film scene at the time, Cox first went to Los Angeles to attempt, attend film school at UCLA in 1977. So he said, fuck this British shit, this stuffy British shit with the, all the stage actors and shit making fucking Pride and Prejudice for the 50th time. 
go to Los Angeles. The Why Pride and Prejudice? You know it's going to be the fucking Hamlet. <laughs> the land of the free. Well, I was just thinking what made it to like TV and movies from England in that time period, and it's all like Pride and Prejudice. I don't, I don't even think Pride and Prejudice. They don't have a lot of women in that in the, in the, in the early 80s. Not a lot of them. Uh, his next film, After Repo Man, is an independent feature shot in London and Los Angeles following the career and death of bassist Sid Vicious and his girlfriend Nancy Spungen. Apparently, this movie was originally going to be called Love Kills. Oh. And then it got renamed to Sid and Nancy. I don't yeah. know if I like Love Kills as a title. So, Sid and Nancy's not that great either. But Yeah. I don't know. It feels like every girl I ever knew in high school to watch Sid and Nancy kind of took the wrong idea away from it. It's the same thing. It's like Joker, Harley Quinn. Yeah. Show. 100%. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't think Love Kills would, would, uh, would make it any better for me. I do. Um, so it was met warmly by critics and fans, though heavily criticized by some, including Sex Pistols frontman Johnny Rotten, John Lydon, for its inaccuracies. I have a theory about the um, Sid and Nancy like real life event. Well, not a theory. I have a um, conspiracy theory. Is that well, no, no. It's There's like aliens. It's like not even mine personally, because a lot of I think other people have expressed this. But had Sid Vicious not died. And actually had to go to trial for killing Nancy. Uh-huh. I think it would have made punk much more popular than it ever actually got. Because you know it didn't really. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's not America. Like a theory. That's just like a, a socialist thing. Yeah. yeah. Or socialism. Sociology thing. Wow. I can't talk yeah. to that. So, so, yeah. Because like, Social. imagine you just because it would be like headline news and shit, right? It'd be like, oh, right. punk killed girlfriend, and then it'd be ongoing trial and shit, and then kids would be like. Huh, murder music. <laughs> no, you're 100% correct. Yeah. That's kind of what happened with rap. Exactly. It was just and they didn't even really kill anybody. You know? No, it's just a <laughs> controversy of what they're saying. Which is, that's why what made punk popular in the UK is just like, for some reason, the United States didn't really ever take off. Probably because, like, our greatest stalwarts of early punk were the Ramones and they weren't really saying anything that feisty. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hold your hand, isn't that uh, <laughs> controversial? Well, they had on their first album, they did have that one song where he's like, I'm a Nazi Shotzi, <laughs> even though he's a Jewish man. So, <laughs> yeah, there's something funny about the early punk scene where it's like the, they're tired of hearing like their dads talk about the war. So, in a juvenile act of rebellion, they're like, Well, what if we wore a swastika t shirt? <laughs> and then everyone in the scene is like Jewish. <laughs> Weird shit. <clears throat> um, but yeah, Johnny Ron fucking hates this movie. He doesn't really like it a lot. Well, yeah, he kind of doesn't like anything. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> in 1996, he had a radio show called the uh, John's Rotten Day. Oh, I think I remember this. But go ahead. Yeah, and he's got here's a great quote. This is what he has to say about the film, and uh, also about drug users and stuff. He comes off like an asshole if you if you can. <laughs> oh, no, there's it. a shock. <laughs> <clears throat> I don't know if Sid did, did kill Nancy. It would be nice and romantic to think he did, but the reality, I think, is a little different. It was all pathetic and awful. Takes me, of course, to the Sid and Nancy film, which a lot of people refer to as being factual, which indeed was not. If you knew anything about the demise of Sid and Nancy, they died several, several months, if like anything, up to a year beforehand because of the heroin and the drug taking. Just the sordid squalor of it all in the movie, of course, glamorizes all that with that stupid riding off to heaven at the end stuff. I thought it sadly, sickeningly depressing, because if you really want to deal with drug addicts in this world, treat them as they should be treated with the utmost disrespect. You do not need to go this way, and I pass this information on to a lot of the sad Seattle scene. There's nothing glorious in squalor. 
It's an affectation which none of you chaps wear well and results in your deaths. And I don't mean to lecture, but I have a very low tolerance of idiocy. Unless you want a hole in the ground, that's not the way to go. <laughs> Fucking you know, I agree with like <laughs> maybe 60% of what he said. Some of like the messaging like, there. Right up until like, he's like, you know what? <laughs> Treat them with contempt. <laughs> Kill drug addicts. <laughs> before that, he was like, it was depressing. I'm like, yeah, it is depressing. Uh-huh. And then and he's, he's like, like, treat them with contempt. Like, wait, no, no. <laughs> yeah. He's like, you know, it's we shouldn't glamorize these things. And then immediately turns into Ronald Reagan, which conveniently is like kind of, have you noticed this trend on the internet as well? Oh, yeah. Where it's like people are um, approaching problematic issues from a place of caring, but then they immediately turn into Tipper Gore about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> It's fucking weird. Like, I think it just kind of goes back to like everything comes down to black and white, and like no one yeah. wants to talk and nuance about anything anymore. Yeah, it's it, it, the simplest shit. Like a movie is either great or terrible. Yeah. Like oh, this is a good, Repo Man's a good uh, example of this too. But like this is one of the movies like when people decry the death of, of cinema and movies and, and like you know what Disney and Marvel are doing. Mm. Repo Man is like a movie that I legitimately fear we'll never see again. We probably won't. Uh, it was crazy for this movie to come out in the 80s, to be right. honest. <laughs> I, I mean, there's some uh, movies in the 80s. I think the 80s is like the perfect time for those movies. Well, yeah, the 80s was the perfect time for there to be counterculture movies. Um, because it was easier. To, that was the easiest point in time to make a movie, to be honest. So anyone could really make a movie. And then there, this is a studio film. Like, Universal made this movie, kind right. of. So sort of. that's the shocking thing is that a major studio allowed, made this movie. But uh, the eighties, there's a lot of like counterculture movies in the eighties, just because that was this is the point anyone could like really pick up a camera and make a movie. And I know a lot of people talk like, "Oh, you can do that now." Tangerine was made with an iPhone. Well, no, you fucking everything is owned by a corporation. You can make a movie yourself. It's just no one's ever gonna see it. <laughs> you gotta put that shit on YouTube, and then for for no one to see. It. Yeah. And then uh, after uh, Sid and Nancy, he did write and direct Straight to Hell, one of my favorite westerns. It stars Joe Strummer and the Pogues. Also, uh, pretty young Courtney Love. Uh, it was widely panned critically, but apparently incredibly successful in Japan. Yeah, and that's, that makes following. sense. I love it. This is another. Wasn't the Clash really popular in Japan? Uh, punk was really popular in Japan. Yeah. Uh, the Clash. I don't know. I, the Pogues actually is surprisingly really popular in Japan. Japan's uh-huh. just got a, a streak of Irish depression, I guess. <laughs> well, they also love Kiss. So let's not give them too much credit. Oh, yeah. A lot of the early punk bands kind of survived off of uh, international audiences. Like the Ramones' success was due to like Central and South America. Like they'd be playing mm-hmm. shitty hole in the walls here, and then go down to South America, and it's fucking arenas and shit. So, I mean, fucking, thank you, man. That's actually kind of like that. Would could be the kind of fame I want. I'll be popular in Brazil and then come home and just. I mean, I think I'd rather be popular. Yeah, uh, yeah. This is another reason why I think I want to move to Japan. Japan seems to like the same things I do. (laughs) Tentacles. Working eighty hundred eighty hours a week. I don't think that's what you. I guess when it comes to consuming media, (laughs) (laughs) everything else about the culture, I guess not yet. Because working really hard, not into it. Tentacle rape, not into it. Uh, not having sex in real life at all and being completely like terrified and sexually averse culturally. No, I don't think so. That's like recent to their culture though. 
But I guess what if Japan is just going to die off? That's where everybody's headed. And then after Straight to Hell, he did Walker, an unconventional retelling. Texas Ranger. Well, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> it's an unconventional, unconventional retelling of the life of William Walker, a 19th century American mercenary leader who became the president of Nicaragua. Set against a backdrop of anach- anachronisms that drew parallels between the story and modern American intervention in the area. The six million production was backed by Universal. Again, they're really risking it on this one. But the completed film was too political and too violent for the studio's taste. Ah, shocking. So they released the film with like zero promotion. Of course, without any promotion, failed to perform in the box office. And Universal was so surprised. Uh, this ended uh, Alex Cox's involvement with the Hollywood and studio system and led to a period of several years in which Cox would not direct a single film. In 1998, he co-wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas with Terry Gilliam. What's he up to these days? Terry Gilliam? Oh, yelling at reporters about social justice wars or some shit. You know, old man stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Alex Cox was originally going to direct Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas instead of Terry Gilliam. But he got replaced due to creative differences with good old Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hunter S. Thompson just doing acid all day for the end of his life. I guess that's a good way to go. Uh, sort of. I don't, mm, I don't know. Mm, I think I'm going to pass on that one. I don't I'll know. Think- I think when I'm older and I don't really have too much going on, I'll probably get back into drinking and doing drugs. I don't know about drinking. Oh, yeah, because... Makes you feel just, too shitty after. Yeah, you know what I mean. Just after a couple of days, you're just, you're just like, you know what? My every day is just gonna be garbage. Yeah, I guess I'll just do. I'll do the microdose acid all the time. There you go. <laughs> like uh, True, dip, just uh, <laughs> like Diplo. Uh, he was also offered to direct Three Amigos, RoboCop. Oh, both and, movies I would love to see this guy direct. And The Running Man. Oh hell yeah! He would have made The Running Man a lot better, I think. He was left out because of creative differences with Richard Dawson. Well, no, he turned down Three Amigos and RoboCop to do Walker instead. And he had been asked to do The Running Man before Walker was released. And then after Walker was released, they were like, um, never mind. (laughs) 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 He's like, hey, uh, I'm calling about the the direction job with the uh, the Running Man, the Schwarzenegger thing. No, we want to... I'm sorry, who? We would rather make money. <laughs> Alex Cox is, however, a gigantic fan of the Japanese Godzilla film. Everybody is. This is making special. Well, he appeared in a 1998 BBC documentary about the Godzilla movies. Did you appear in that? <laughs> I wasn't famous enough in 1998, nor am I now. Oh. He also narrated the documentary Bringing Godzilla Down to Size, The Art of Japanese Special Effects. Wow. I, uh, I can definitely narrate a Godzilla documentary, though, 100%. And he wrote the Godzilla in Time comics for Dark Horse. You were, you write some Godzilla comics? Uh, I in my youth, no one's ever read them, but maybe you and Mom. But they're out there. <laughs> <laughs> the early work. And there's a, a lot of early comics with like Godzilla and Iron Man and shit. <laughs> <laughs> we a lot of real hodgepodge of characters in some mm. of our. <laughs> we were into the shared universe shit real early. Yeah. Yeah, it's like fucking. If you can make a comic like all of Marvel's teaming up, it's yeah, first of all, <laughs> Godzilla already fought the Marvel universe at one point, right? Man, fucking, someone needs to make that. I know I'm always talking shit about Marvel and the 
uh, corporatocracy has taken over the film industry, but I love for Marvel versus Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> I watched that shit two times in theaters. <laughs> That's the next uh, the next big threat. Fuck Thanos. Fuck Galactus. I think fuck Doctor could, Doom. It's Godzilla. Yeah, because uh, at that point it would be like them throwing their hands in the air and being like, "We don't even pretend to have artistic integrity anymore." And I'm like, <laughs> All right, finally. Fucking, I can really appreciate it. It's true trash cinema. Thank you. Mark. There you. Well, then you can do, what you need to do is the uh, the Pat Oswalt uh, Parks and Rec bullshit, where he's like the Star Wars universe invades Marvel or some shit. <laughs> uh, Pat Oswalt. Uh, he wanted to make an American Godzilla film at one point, but uh, he saw outline, how that worked with Roland Emmerich. No, he did it before that, but his outline he submitted to TriStar Pictures uh, was declined. They're like, nah. We'd rather not do that. <laughs> We'd rather make it shitty. He's also. Can you make him look like an iguana that fucked a T Rex? T Rex? A T Rex. T Rex. A T Rex. T Rex 9000. He's a fan of spaghetti westerns, which is probably why I'm hated straight to hell. Uh, he wrote a book on the history of the genre called 10,000 Ways to Die, director's take on the spaghetti western. And then I guess oh, that one guy made a. Yeah, Seth MacFarlane stole it, I guess. He went to law school with Tony Blair. Ugh. <laughs> well, he is like a posh Englishman. Yeah, I got that from his. Yeah. He went to Oxford, Kyle. I got uh-huh. it. Well, he dropped out to go to Bristol. <laughs> Ooh, this guy thinks he's real cool, then. Yeah, the law school was probably his time at Oxford. Then I, I mean, basically, he called out himself in the Repo Man movie with Emilio Estevez. He's like, "You're just a, a, a suburban punk, just like me." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which uh, well. <laughs> I guess we'll talk about that line now because it's kind of the one that bothers me the most. Is like, you're just a white suburban punk like me. And I get like what he's trying to go for. Like, obviously, uh, white suburbanites and stuff don't have it as hard as people of color and stuff. However, all throughout the movie, he's shown that, um, although they technically live in the suburbs and they're white, they're not at the top of the pile at, by any means, right? They're all right. just kind of barely getting along. And it's like, uh, yeah, some of your suffering does have to do this with society. <laughs> yeah, but I think more like uh, uh, Otto's point to uh, at that point was like, why the fuck are you shooting people and robbing people? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, Otto doesn't believe anything, believe in anything either. Yeah. Well, so. I mean, at the same time, he doesn't. I guess that's true, but he's not necessarily a huge dick about it. He's um like cute about it, but he is a dick. I don't know. I guess it's on a sliding scale of dictum. He's, I didn't see him shoot or rob anybody over it. Yeah, but I mean, Duke and his gang are uh, caricatures of caricatures, right? Yeah, yeah. So the 80s, um, all punks were ridiculous comical villains, like in the uh, fucking uh, Bronson movies. <laughs> uh, um, we watched uh, one. Well, that's the first uh, one. Death Wish, yeah. Death Wish, yeah. But then they're also really cool and fight zombies, like in uh, Return of the Living Dead. Death. Yeah, that that Return Living Dead was kind of like uh <laughs> And also sometimes they're like really into karate and have ninja fights in warehouses like in The Last Dragon. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, that's true. This movie actually is like has a little similar vibe to me for to The Last Dragon. Really? The Last Dragon is more like a fairy tale where Right, this is more cute. This is like more like uh dirtier, but this is just like a surreal movie, I think. Speaking of surreal movies, Alex Cox says, I was the person who brought Mars Attacks to the attention of the studio. There were bubblegum cards I had as a kid. I developed Mars Attacks with John Davison, the producer of Robocop, Robocop for quite a while. 
But at some point, my project got shut down. I was given to Tim Burton. Jack Nicholson owes me money. <laughs> it was a bit of a shame, but I think both the script that I wrote and the Tim Burton one suffered from not being enough like the bubblegum cards. I mean, what can you do with the cards? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he also has this uh, great quote about uh, Spielberg, which is, uh, Spielberg isn't a filmmaker. He's a confectioner. Jaws is a good movie, though. I'll give him Jaws. Nah, I mean, Spielberg has some good <laughs> stuff in there. You know what I mean? Schindler's I List. Yeah. I wasn't even really listening to Schindler's List, to, to be honest. Uh, like, Indiana Jones. Oh, uh, I don't... I've tried to rewatch the Indiana Jones in yeah? last year, I think. No, I don't... I do not like the Indiana Jones movies at all. It's, I guess because I didn't watch them enough as a kid or something. But I don't have any nostalgia for them. And I'm like, these are just kind of boring. <laughs> you're going to get a punch in the street over that. Probably not, because the only people who care about Indiana Jones are dorky white boys on the internet. Like see them come <laughs> that's out the only the people who care about Indiana. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> now I saw Jesus posting. Uh, oh, Jerry Stiller died today. Rest in peace. Oh yeah, I don't talk about that. He wasn't uh, talking about movies, but he was like, uh, "King of Queens is better than Seinfeld. I'll fight you if you like Seinfeld more. You're anti-black." That was Jesus saying that. So, <laughs> obviously, it wasn't movie specifically, but other people care about. The media they consume. <laughs> I think he was joking too. I don't think he's actually in a fight anymore, but I don't want. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. He's pretty rich. I don't think he's gonna fight. I mean, maybe in his, in his youth, but yeah, it'd be a waste to do it now. Yeah, he's, that's a lot of work. A lot of lawyers. A lot of legal fees. I man, it must be nice to like get to the point where you have enough money where you don't feel like you have to fight anymore. <laughs> maybe you still feel like you do have to fight, but you're like, oh, I don't. So much oh, yeah, money. It's like it won't be worth it. Who we got in this movie, huh? Who's who's we acting here? We got Harry Dean Stanton. Let's talk about Harry Dean Stanton. <laughs> oh, this is my second Harry Dean Stanton movie this week because I watched Alien and Aliens. With the oh shit, that's what's up. He's a good actor. I like him a lot, but uh, oh, you know, he's a cult figure of cinema and music. When Debbie Harry sang the lyric, "I want to dance with Harry Dean" in her 1990 hit, "I Want That Man," she was talking about him. Oh, even though he looks like the he's got like that um corpse slash wild west look to him (laughs) he always looks like uh like your friend's dad who had like a a job you weren't quite sure what it was but he came home at odd hours and always wore a suit well he looks like your friend's dad who um uh, (laughs) used to be a drug addict (laughs) or an alcoholic well, and like he, he still drank occasionally for some reason. <laughs> hey, that's uh, my feeling about being alcoholic. If I'm not able to be around alcohol and sometimes drink it without any element of control, then I haven't actually beaten it. <laughs> Mind over matter. I don't know, man. Fuck that AA shit and the fucking fine Christianity bullshit. I'll figure out my own. Scenario. No, Kyle, it's just a vague higher power. Uh, <laughs> no, it's a religious organization. <laughs> Um, speaking of him being a corpse that looks like he came out of the Wild West, Harry Dean Stanton, of course, came from the classic pipeline we've mentioned many times, where you go from TV westerns to uh, bigger movies, your career kind of stalls, and then eventually you end up in 80s exploitation movies. However, with Harry Dean Stanton, his career took off later on in his career with Alien and Escape from New York and Red Dawn and Pretty in Pink. And Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Harry Dean Stanton became a major actor pretty late in his career, is what I'm saying. So rather than just showing up in 80s movies, because that's the only work he could get, 
He's fucking Harry Dean Stanton. Everyone <laughs> Some people just got it, and Harry Dean Stanton got it. Yeah, uh, he just like had a few bit part. He had a bit part in Cool Hand Luke that everyone liked. He was in Kelly's Heroes, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, which we mentioned last week because it also had uh, Chris Christopherson and uh, Chris Bob Christopherson. And uh, Godfather Part Two, and then yeah, Alien came out, and at that point he was like, "This is the character actor that everyone must work with." <laughs> <laughs> you all better prepare for Harry Dean. Harry Dean's coming, and Debbie Harry wants him. Uh, Harry Dean Stanton wanted to do a baseball. Uh, oh, um, so yeah, uh, Harry Dean Stanton rules. He's a great actor, been in a lot of great movies. Uh, now we're going to talk about how ridiculous he was on set. He wanted to do a baseball type signal to Emilio Estevez in a scene where he had to show him where to park a car. Cox, a notorious, notorious sports hater, which is fucking weird, <laughs> refused the suggestion. According to Alex Cox on the DVD commentary, Stanton lost his temper. He said, uh, Quoted as saying, I've worked with the greatest directors of all time. Francis Ford Coppola, Monty Hellman. You know why they're great? Because they let me do whatever the fuck I wanted. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sounds like Francis Ford Coppola. Well, no, that's uh, Harry Dean Stanton saying that. No, no, I'm not saying that. But he let Harry Dean Stanton do whatever the fuck he wants. Oh, yeah, but he has to get him drunk first. (laughs) Berate him about him for 20 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, berate him about his personal life. (laughs) My machine. Uh, Martin Sheen, the son, is in this movie. <laughs> Filming a scene in which Bud, Harry Dean Stanton, brandishes a bat at the Rodriguez brothers. Uh, Harry Dean wanted a real bat and did actually use it in one take, swinging it around recklessly. The other cast members were relatively okay with it, but Robbie Moeller, who is the director of photography cinematographer of the film, took Alex Cox aside and said, Just now I felt the wind of a wooden baseball bat pass over my face. I will not shoot the scene unless all the actors use plastic bats. Unsurprisingly, Stan was furious when asked to use a plastic bat, screaming out, Harry Dean Stan only uses real baseball bats! <laughs> God damn! A literal tug of war. I was war. not prepared for this. <laughs> a literal tug of war ensued over the bat, much to the <laughs> You give Harry Dean Stan his goddamn bat! <laughs> Yeah, and then uh, fortunately, a quick-witted production assistant was able to swap the wooden bat out for a plastic one, like he was a child distracted. <laughs> Harry, hey, Harry, over here, look. Candy, Harry. Cigarettes. Uh, for the first couple days of filming, Harry Stanton refused to learn his lines. <laughs> Harry said, Dean improvised. Harry <laughs> Dean does what he wants. Harry said that Warren Oates read his dialogue in two-lane blacktop off of note cards stuck to the dashboard, so he should be able to do the same. Alex Cox overcame this obstacle by informing him that refusing to learn lines was in breach of the SAG contract, which may or may not be true. And then Stanton <laughs> memorized everything perfectly after that. <laughs> He's trying to do a Marlon Brando. <laughs> put the lines there in front of me. I'll read them. <laughs> you have something in a two-way radio. Uh, Harry Dean's general moodiness and constant grumbling about money prompted Alex Cox to consider writing him out of the rest of the film and giving his remaining scenes to light. Michael Nesmith vetoed this plan. Michael Nesmith's from the Monkees, by the way. (laughs) Hey, 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 I'm the producer. You can fire that man. (laughs) So thanks to Michael Nesmith, Stan stayed in the picture. The kid stays in the picture. Ugh. Uh, it also helped a little that Stanton noticed how the crew revered uh, Moeller, the director of photography, and began to and uh, he began to do so in turn. So if Cox wanted something done, he'd sometimes tell Stanton that it was for Robbie, and it worked. Wow! Yeah, 
So who's Robbie Muller? We could do a whole podcast about him. He's a celebrated cinematographer and DP, director of photography. And at one point, Michael Nesmith from The Monkees asked Alice Cox to come up with his dream choice and promised to find the money to hire whoever it was. Cox thought of Rob Muller's car scenes in The American Friend and suggested him. Muller had only worked on one American film before and had enjoyed the, enjoyed the experience. But upon receipt of Cox's script, liked it so much that he agreed to sign on. Hey, hey, you're going to work with Harry Dean Stanton? You're going to hate <laughs> his fucking guts? He's going to swing it bad at you. <laughs> We we can swap it out for a metal one. How about that? <laughs> Harry Dean only uses real bats. And second hand to Harry Dean Stanton. Or I guess maybe he's the star. I don't know. It's Emilio. Emilio. He's the, what he's a handsome the, young man. The mightiest duck. <laughs> he's uh, Charlie Sheen's older brother. I thought he was the younger brother for some reason. No, I knew he was the, uh, the, the older one. Oh. Uh, he's also got a sister named Renee and a brother named Ramon. Yeah, they're also in the film industry. What a dynasty. Yeah, they have a very similar uh, dynamic, Charlie Sheen uh, Amido, to you and I. <laughs> 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 Just kidding. You got HIV? No, you have HIV. He's he, he, Charlie Sheen's younger brother. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're full <laughs> tiger blood. Hell yeah, I am full tiger blood. And did a lot of drugs, but... But I worship Bobby Kennedy like a god. (laughs) Damn Kennedys. So his father opted to use the stage name Sheen over his more ethnic birth name, Estevez. Sheen's not ethnic. It's uh, the right kind of ethnicity at the time, though. If you're going to go with something that sounds Spanish or an Irish name in the 50s, you better go with the Irish name. Emilio chose to retain the family name, hoping to avoid writing his father's coattails. He also thought the double E set of initials was pretty, which I agree with. There's something nice about the alliteration of his name. I mean, you may, alliterated names make you make me think of like comic book heroes like Peter Parker, Bruce Banner. Yeah, you know. Stan Lee did that. <laughs> yeah, but um, something about his name, I guess because of the vowels in it and stuff, it doesn't seem as bad. Like Emilio. Like, I knows. could be, I could be like a, a Spanish Spider-Man. Yeah. So yeah, this film is his first big breakthrough. This is before he'll go on to be in the John Hughes movies and shit. No one even knows who Emilio is yet. Emilio! Emilio! The only person who knows who he is is his family. Uh, Martin Sheen, Joe Estevez, and Charlie Sheen. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of John Hughes, uh, classically he's in The Breakfast Club. He was originally cast as Bender. Oh, yeah, I remember that. That would be a weird role for him. Yeah, but he had to do Andrew instead after Hughes could find no one else to fill the role. And he was like, well, Judd Nelson, you look like a criminal. <laughs> so he... I know voices for Transforming Robot. A lot of kids, people our age, will know him from Mighty Ducks, of course, where he appeared in all three films. However, he only makes a brief appearance in D3, The Mighty Ducks. This is because in exchange for Disney helping him finance and distribute another effort as actor-director, The War at Home. So he was like, yeah, I'll be in this shitty-ass fucking hockey goddamn fucking movie if you give me money for my movie. <laughs> the War at he's, Home. He's done that a lot. That's uh, what I understand. I mean, that's kind of like the deals you make when you're actor turned director, I guess. Uh, though enjoyed by critics, The War at Home received a paltry distribution by Disney and thus went largely unseen. That's another thing that Disney does is uh, make little deals and then don't really follow through on them. 
he was once engaged to Demi Moore, and he was married to Paula Abdul. You know, oh, I don't know he's married to Paula Abdul. Well, official stud. <laughs> uh, Opposite detract. He was the he was the cat in that music video, I believe. <laughs> what is that cast name? MC Cool Look Cat. If I remember. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was originally going to play the lead in Oliver Stone's Platoon, but when production shut down for two years, he moved on to other projects. The role then went to his brother Charlie Sheen. Uh, hmm, it's crazy. Hmm. Coincidental, or was he probably just like, oh, no, I don't have time now. Have my brother do it. (laughs) (laughs) Have my brother do your piece of shit. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne saved Emilio from dying in quicksand during some downtime while making Apocalypse Now. So had Lawrence Fishburne not been there to save Emilio, we would have never gotten Repo Man or the Mighty Ducks. (laughs) Thank you, Lawrence Fishburne. So Emilio's father, Martin Sheen, was starring in Apocalypse Now. Emilio Estevez was also there because he had a cameo in Apocalypse Now, which was cut. Francis Ford Coppola was like, get that goddamn Estevez out of here. <laughs> I don't give a shit if he almost died on set. I cut a scene, little shit. Yeah, I don't know. He's probably playing around in the jungle or whatever, and Larry Frisburn had to fish him out of quicksand. Also, it's like super hard to die in quicksand, so the story's probably a little bit exaggerated. <laughs> And according to Alex Cox, Emilio Estevez was fond of parading around in his drawers. That's why you just see him in his underwear all the time in the movie. That's just <laughs> how he lived his life, like me. I hate wearing clothes. As do I. Everyone um, knows, really, if they're honest. Yeah, I mean, like, we're not supposed to wear clothes. Like, I always gotta protect, like, my... I feel like I gotta protect my um, genitals, just for some reason that's, like, an impulse. is like, gotta make sure those are safe. But otherwise, like, no clothes. So the loincloth to me makes the most sense <laughs> or like a jock strap i basically want to live like a like your your tarzan or your, mm-hmm. your conan correct uh filmmakers had to go out of their way to avoid showing emilio estevez's big bulge though in those scenes what yeah he's got a big dick got a big old dick <laughs> 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 I uh, read the. I learned this fact before I watched the movie for the second time because I watched this movie like three times this week because I really liked this movie. Uh-huh. And uh, after reading it, the whole movie, well, not the whole movie, but well, yeah, the whole movie because you can see it in his jeans sometimes. <laughs> but when he, especially in his underwear, is like, hmm, he's got a big old dick in there. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a big old dick in there. Got a big old dick in there. He does. I mean, doesn't it could be a prosthetic or it could be stuff or something, but it looks like he got big old dick in there. Uh, despite it troubled the re- initial release due to universal skepticism towards the film's commercial viability, Repo Man received widespread acclaim and was deemed by critics to be one of the best films of 1984. Has since gained cult following, particularly surrounded surrounding Cox's re-edited version of the film for television due its due to its deliberate inclusion of surreal overdubs to replace fro- profanity, which would later be copied by Eber- Edgar Wright for Hot Fuzz. Peas and rice! All the products used in the movie are generic, notable for their blue stripe on white packaging and black text. English gin. Uh, their filmmakers were satirizing a real-life growing trend in American grocery stores at the time, where because of the sluggish 1980s economy, Actual generic white packaged foods were popular. The blue stripe scene in the movie is taken from a real life blue stripe generic beer can that was sold by Southern California's California's Ralph's supermarkets. Little Ralph's. Yep, the filmmakers choose to mock this as showing how banal American life had become in the early eighties, including making up their own generic products like food, meat flavor, dry gin, and drink. Ooh, I like some drink. 
So, uh, interesting thing about this, though, with the generic products is uh, Ralph's, the supermarket mentioned in that fact, actually sponsored the film. So, they didn't, uh, Alex Cox's original intent wasn't to just, he didn't have a reason for, he didn't go into the movie wanting to highlight this generic food uh, craze or whatever, but the products that they received from Ralph's to use were these generic ones. And then uh, seeing him and being around him and dealing with him, he decided to drive the point further home by creating the food and drinking. Yeah, the more obvious ones to, you know, satire. (laughs) (laughs) There should be one that's just sauce. 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 One of the spice. Spice. (laughs) (laughs) Flavor does. Anyhow, the Repo Man's code is based on an amalgamation of wisdom given to Alex Cox when he was serving in real life as a Repo Man, as well as uh, Isaac Asimov's uh, three rules in robotics or whatever it is. I'm not familiar with Repo Man's code that he learned. I have a vague memory of Isaac Asimov's Three rules of robotics about not hurting humans and all that bullshit. Yeah, that's bullshit. It doesn't matter anymore. There are no rules for robots, just like with humanity. Yeah, Section I know. I saw Alien. Harry Dean Stanton was in it. That robot definitely hurt some people. He was crazy. Fucking Bilbo Baggins. That robot was crazy, man. He just wanted the one ring. <laughs> uh, Xander Schloss, which is a fun name, who plays Kevin Schloss. the Nerd, Otto's friend with the curly mohawk. Yeah, Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, after this film, he ended up joining the Circle Jerks. Oh, he's like, ah, I've been steeped in this punk rock mythology. Uh, the Circle Jerks also appear in the movie as the lounge singers, doing like a shitty lounge Oh, shit, that was them, wasn't it? Yeah, you can tell. Because they were doing Morris. their. Yeah. He's got that Keith Morris face. No dreadlocks yet, though. All cars plus the police motorcycle have Pine Tree Air Fresheners. The company that makes these air fresheners was one of the sponsors of the movie. So they just got the like most random shit to give him money for the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and Alex Cox picked the now iconic 6470 Malibu as Dre Frank Parnell's MacGuffin-toting transportation because he liked the boxy aspect of the car and felt that it looked sinister. Well, it should have gone with Gremlin. I think it's probably a good choice because the Malibu does kind of the design of it does kind of stand out, and there's a lot of scenes in the movie. To highlight how Otto and Bud um, actually aren't very good at their job or good at anything. There's a lot of scenes in the movie of them driving and the Malibu's like around them. Yeah, they drive right by it. Meanwhile, and sometimes they're even talking about the Malibu while they drive past it. Uh, During filming, Dave Schaefer, one of the producers, noticed that Alex Cox didn't have his own car and suggested that he use the Malibu as his personal transportation. But he'll get radiation poisoning. (laughs) No, it's like some sort of alien sickness. It's like the revenge (laughs) from uh, War of the Worlds. Uh, one evening, though, Cox drove the Malibu to the Edge City offices in Venice to confront his producer about Moeller and the sh- slow filming place, pace. While they were lost in spirited conversation, the Malibu was stolen. <sighs> As well, did it magically you- return to the lot the next morning? Nah, guts? What they did is they rescheduled scenes with the car, and the Teamsters mounted a frantic search to find a similar car. Eventually, one was found, and technical experts worked on it to make it resemble a stolen vehicle. Just as they got done doing so, the old Malibu was found abandoned in Riverdale. Abandoned in Riverdale. Ah, fucking Riverdale. Yeah. Silver lining was that they now had two hero cars. <laughs> <laughs> One mysteriously disappeared, but Alex Cox uh, bought a Malibu the next day for himself. <laughs> yeah, wow. Interesting. <laughs> 
Uh, there's an alternate ending that was planned but never filmed. Well, first off the top, the original written ending is uh, the um, atomic event actually happens and s- destroys the world. I knew that than, one. Yeah, rather than him flying off into space heaven in his uh, I'm pretty sure he goes back into the past. That's what they were talking about at one point in the movies. Time is a flat circle or whatever. Uh, alternate ending. Was Time is planned. illusion. Love's a myth. Your mom's a whore. Your dad. Daddy's name Griff. <laughs> Straight off the top. That got that pretty easy. Right off the dome, homie. That's me, a freestyle, wild sound profile, and wild freestyle. That's why they call me Pill Murray. <laughs> Actually, they call me Pill Murray because I used to sell Zans. Pill Murray. Put that on my fucking resume. Straight <laughs> off the top on resume, I'm so Northern California that I call Scratch Bammer. That's why I get all the jobs. Um, <laughs> or none of them. Alternate ending was planned but never filmed. Otto was to join a group of South American revolutionaries. Small element of this ending can be viewed in the scenes in which Marlene is at the Rodriguez brothers' home where an arsenal of weapons is stashed. I think that would have been a cool ending because then uh, it's like, oh, now Otto actually has some purpose in life. But, you know, <laughs> whatever. Fucking gold car. He's got a purpose now. He's going to go hang out with uh, that one dude in the past in aliens in space or something. I don't know. I'm going to hang out with fucking aliens. The aliens were made of condoms filled with the rice. That sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> or rice pudding, something like that. Um, yeah, another alternate ending had the entire city being annihilated in a nuclear explosion. Cause, so of those, of the endings, the ending we have and the two potential endings, which one do you actually like? I don't know. I don't really like the ending. I, I, that was my big complaint. It was like the third act's kind of like, eh, whatever. Yeah, the third act's just, well, the, the ending kind of makes it, um, so there's no uh, growth for Otto as anybody. a character with, or anybody really, which is fine because the whole movie is about nihilism, which we'll talk about momentarily when I take a shit all over Alex Cox because of our different philosophical beliefs. <laughs> but um, yeah, the way the ending is now, it makes it because he, he's like um, comforting his friend Bud, right, who's been shot. And then uh, Marlene comes over and she's like stroking his hair and it's like, okay, maybe... He'll have like a come to Jesus moment about what things are really valuable in life. But then crazy dude gets in the car and he's like, come on. And he's like, all right. And then Marlene's even like, what about a relationship? And he's like, fuck that. Well, she did just torture him. So like, I honestly, I'll find someone else too. Yeah, I know. But it's just like, <laughs> uh, he just returns to exactly where it was. Yeah, right, right. Which is uh, highlighted really well of the emptiness of Otto as a character, I think, is uh, while they're at the grocery store, he's working with Kevin. Kevin's singing the 7-Up jingle mindlessly, right? Mm -hmm. And then later on, after um, Otto's been uh, cuckolded, he's been cucked, as it were, and he's chilling on the railway, like, drinking beers, and he's just mindlessly saying TV party by Black Flag. You get the, the, the... I feel like it's a, a nice uh, juxtaposition between the two characters where you'd be like, oh, Otto's actually just as empty-headed as Kevin. <laughs> no, but he's singing TV Party, so it's different than <laughs> yeah, singing but a commercial jingle. He's say, singing it with like no actual emotion or like understanding the lyrics. You know, he's just reciting something you heard rather than internalizing it in any way, I think. Also, TV, TV Party is like the, the goofiest Black Fly song. <laughs> <laughs> While scouting for locations, however, the crew encountered Muhammad Ali. What? He was training. He knocked out six of the the crew. He was propositioned to do the scene at the movie's finale. It would have played like so. Ali would have exited the helicopter along with the three holy men, which would have been awesome. (laughs) Ultimately, after the glowing Chevy Malibu refused to allow the priest, bishop, and rabbi to come any closer. 
The greatest boxer who ever lived would attempt to approach the car, but he too would fail to make contact. And then Muhammad Ali politely declined to do the same. <laughs> the, the ending of the movie could, should have been like, yeah, he comes out, the holy figures, they're not able to do it, and then Muhammad Ali drives off in the car. <laughs> they should have, he, after the holy figures refused entry, he should have punched the car and should have exploded. They <laughs> <laughs> saved the day. So, what's the critical consensus on this film before we get to uh, Kyle's critical consensus on the film? Pill Murray's view of the film. <laughs> I mean, it's enjoyable. It's not something <laughs> I'm going uh, oh. <laughs> I, I, I think I went into it earlier a little bit, but like, it's like, um, it's one of those movies that I think, you know, doesn't really have a chance to get made anymore. Very enjoyable. There's a lot of problems with it, but it's still a fun watch. Yeah, um, I still really love it. I just have a problem with Alex Cox's philosophy. Especially. I mean, the philosophy of the movie uh, is garbage. It's nihilism, you know. Uh, I've been accused. Of yeah, I said, uh, I said bit, it's so. garbage, Kyle. I've, yeah. I've but it. Rotten Tomatoes gives the film a ninety-eight percent approval rating based on forty-four reviews. The critical consensus reads: Repo Man is many things: an alien invasion film, a punk rock musical, a send-up of consumerism. One thing it is isn't, or one thing it isn't is boring. Except for, um, it's not really an alien invasion film. Definitely it's not a punk rock. Not musical a punk either. rock musical. It is a send up of consumerism. <laughs> so one of those things is true. If you're gonna do, if you if you know anything about writing, you got it's three. You got to do three. <laughs> you got to do three things. You got to shave the cat. Oh, you got to like, three save things. Save the cat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where's the fun in games? <laughs> Raise the we, yeah, we talk about we fucking talk about this last week. How I I do not like the way most reviewers write about movies because their language is um, too flowery. Yeah, I mean it's that, but it's just like, come on, people don't talk like this. Just talk like a person. Some people do. I, I feel like that about most like academia too. When it comes to like you know book reviews or, or writing or thinking about books, it's just like, why do you you don't need to talk like that. Yeah, you just do this because it makes you feel better about yourself. Like it justifies your four-year fucking degree. My thing with it is, um, I, I give people allowance for it because uh, they're people that like to write. Uh, they just, you know, maybe they didn't want to spend their whole life reviewing shit, but that's the job they have. So they're trying to make it enjoyable for themselves for themselves to write. I think I don't know. Sometimes they seem like you know, it's kind of like, oh, whatever, asshole. But at the end of the day, <laughs> when I think about it, I'm like, eh, if I had that job, I'd probably try to take a lot of creative liberties with what I was writing to. I make them all in the stories. In 2008, the film was voted by a group of Los Angeles Times writers and editors as the eighth best film set in Los Angeles in the last 25 years. Hmm. Entertainment Weekly ranked the film seventh on their list of the top 50 cult films. And this film is part of the Criterion Collection. Did you watch the Criterion version? I don't think so. Oh, I did because it is glorious 1080p. Whoa! It's I don't know. This was one of those films that needs to be 1080p. I don't need to see all the pockmarks on Harry Dean Stanton. It was the most pristine I'd ever seen the film. I loved it. It actually, uh, there's some like camera work in it. Maybe it's because last time I watched this, I was pretty young, like 15. No, the camera work, especially at the beginning, is pretty good. Yeah, because I don't, I didn't remember um, there being exciting camera work in it. But I'm like, oh no, this is actually shot really well. And it's probably just because I'm older and I understand film a lot more than I did when I was 16. Has nothing to do with being 1080 pps, but 1080 pps is fun the same. What did our good friend Roger Ebert, our frenemy, have to say about the film? It's weird to be uh, frenemies with someone that's been dead for almost a decade. And Over ne- a decade, and never at any point in their life had any idea that we existed. <laughs> I don't know. I had to think that maybe he passed us on the street one day, and he looked over and he's like, mm, "Someday, you sack of shit." Yeah, I remember that one time the uh, NASCAR man drove down our street. Oh yeah, that was weird. Yeah. <laughs> It would have been better if Ebert did. <laughs> he could have. 
He just doesn't have as much fanfare. He was too busy in Southern California, shitty Hollywood, to come up north to the slums of the Bay Area. <laughs> and anyhow, Roger Ebert says, I saw Repo Man near the end of a busy stretch on the movie beat. Oh. Three days during which I saw more relentlessly bad movies than during any comparable period in memory. Most of these bad movies were so cynically constructed out of formulaic ideas and commercial ingredients that watching them was an ordeal. I feel like we're on for a good turn here. Go ahead. Yeah, Repo Man comes out of left field, has no big stars, didn't cost much, takes chances, dares to be unconventional, is funny, and works. There is a lesson here, and a lesson that Hollywood's not learned. <laughs> well, they tried to give Alex Cox a, a couple more shots at the, you know, at the mark, and, uh, well, he didn't get to make Running Man, let's just say that. Yeah, that's true, because he made a movie that was too political and violent for Universal Studios. He's like, hey, I got an idea for a movie about this uh, very uh, maligned figure of South American history. Um, Is it about voodoo? And like, hey, uh, Could you put voodoo in it? (laughs) Put some voodoo in it. Make sure it's not offensive to white people. (laughs) It's finally time for my official official review of Repo Man and Alex Cox. Um, so Alex Cox, I was really into him when I was younger because I knew he was the quote unquote punk rock director and I was into punk rock. And when you're like 15, 16, you don't have uh, as nuanced thought as you do when you're older in your thirties, like I am now. I so, definitely did. I so you're more about more nuanced than I was at 15. Well, you're more interested in identitarian stuff or representation maybe. So it was like, I knew he's a punk rock director. I wanted to see punk rock things. So I was fans of movies. Repo Man, still a really good movie. It's shocking it got made in the 80s, like we said. Shot really well, uh, acted really well. It's an interesting story. It's funny. It's cute. And Straight to Hell, I still love Straight to Hell. Straight to Hell is like not as good of a movie as Repo Man, to be quite honest, but it's just a lot of fun. So check out Straight to Hell. We'll watch it eventually. So I'm not trying to hit on Alex Cox too much. Walker is also a really good movie, and he solidifies a political stance a lot better in that movie. I don't know if we'll watch that one. It's a little bit serious for this show. Well, no, it's it's uh, it's kind of weird enough. Maybe we'll get to it. Anyhow, my big problem with Repo Man is that it is about nihilism. Uh, oh, so it's about nothing. Well, it's about how nothing matters. Over the years, Alex Cox has kind of tried to distance himself from the punk scene. Uh, for his involvement in the punk scene because his involvement in the punk scene is incredibly negligible. He was going, he was attending Oxford during the UK punk movement. So his exposure to UK punk was just what he saw in the media. So the reason I think this movie is so nihilistic is because he embraced the perceived nihilism that was going on in the UK punk scene that was filtered through the media to him. So he doesn't even understand the punk scene from his own country. And then he comes to the United States and makes a punk movie in L.A. using all the L.A. hardcore bands as musical backdrop um, and completely does not understand the L.A. hardcore scene because this is when uh, punk and hardcore is starting to become really political, really political and codified for what the belief system is for good or for bad. I mean, I have problems with some of the uh, like the, the regimented belief systems of the hardcore movements, but. This is a time period where punk is absolutely not about nihilism. And even in the UK punk scene, those Sex Pistols weren't singing about nihilism. They're fed up with society 
they were, didn't think they had a fair shake. They didn't think they had a future. That didn't mean they didn't believe anything. It's just they thought future is bad. Of course, the Clash was never saying about nihilism, right? They're always about political action. The damned weren't seen about nihilism. They just, you know, wanted to make love and be spooky. My problem with Alex Cox now at this point in my life is that he's still celebrated as a punk figure and he is punk DIY to the extent of a filmmaker, right? Cause he did, I, he did it my way. <laughs> So it's like that as DIY aspect of it is I did it rock, my way. But I don't think he actually understands the punk movement at all. He just has the filter version he got from the UK, which gave him the seed of nihilism. And then he perpetuated it further in Repo Man. Um, I mean, them being punks is kind of just second fiddle to the movie anyways, right? But Otto sells out immediately as soon as he gets 25 bucks, right? He's like, I'm not going to be a Repo Man. Pours, pulls, pours out a beer on the floor, give him $20, and he sells out right away. So Otto doesn't believe anything, then by extension of that, and then the characters of caricatures of Duke and his gang being um, cutthroat punk criminals, but kind of like suburban babies. It's And then Bud being sort of, he's supposed to be the wise and old spiritual Bill hand for Otto yeah, to follow, but he, he lays out the Repo Man code and then doesn't follow any of it. And then how the ending works without any personal growth for any of the characters where basically everything in the movie is meaningless. And by extension, all belief systems are meaningless. Blah, blah, blah. Um, I don't know. It's just kind of disappointing to look at it from that angle now as an adult. So that's my problem with the philosophy of the film. I don't think it's particularly punk rock. I appreciate the some stabs at consumerism and the problems with the United States, 80s America and Ronald Reagan. But even that seems just kind of shallow in the movie, right? It's not directly addressed. It's like, all right, so yeah, yeah there's... It's just, dressing. It's, just, it's kind of just like that's what L.A. looked like at the time. And it was... um. It's cool to see that part of LA, especially in the eighties, where like they're not showing anything outside of like Hollywood and stuff, you know what I mean? So it's cool to see East Los Angeles and San Pedro and stuff, but it, it, he doesn't address any of that really. It's just kind of just yep, there. Here's it's the there. margins of society. America doesn't work for everybody. Aliens though. <laughs> He's gonna pick up this girl real quick. Yeah. So that's, that's where we're at. Aliens, ah. Yeah, I guess it's more of a, what it is, it's more of a snapshot of a time rather than a carefully constructed work of satire, in my opinion. But it is still really funny. It's really fun. Milo Estevez is cute. Um, I don't know. It's weird. They just paint the car in day glow paint. It looks awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and the soundtrack is pretty cool. Creative Noise noted the soundtrack is a snapshot of the early 1980s Los Angeles hardcore punk scene at the time. Uh, director Cox wanted the music to serve as a backdrop to the story of the life of the Repo Man, um, which I guess works because of the aggressiveness, aggressiveness of the songs. But like I said, this is a time period where these L.A. hardcore bands are starting to become uh, much more political and much more uh, regimented in their beliefs. They're starting to solidify belief systems that go into like the American hardcore scene and punk and there's variation from the bay area to la to new york and shit but this is a time period where punk absolutely kind of has a belief system and then the whole movie's about not believing in anything 
which I guess is a pitfall of a lot of punk rockers in the 80s, right? Is if you don't believe in the government, you don't believe in religion, you can't trust any of these things. What is there to believe in? Whole thing is like, I don't punk rock. Yeah, I don't trust in the government. I don't believe in religion. Um, I don't, I, as much as I talk about chaos magic and esoteric shit, I don't really believe it. There's very few things I believe in, but, um, I just kind of believe in the power of humanity and loving other people. So you don't have to jump to the conclusion that nothing matters. The simplest shit matters. It's just the, the big fake story that, that everyone tells you and doesn't really matter. What big fake story about God? No, the myths of God and society and politics and the flag and country. What it means to participate in society and what your your value of yourself is worth is based on your bank accounts. You know no, I mean? not just your bank account. It's your job, too. What and your credit you know? score. The dignity of work. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, the big myths. Those aren't true. They are just myths. But the, the simple shit that's been around forever, like you love your mom and your wife and uh, it's good to eat food with your friends and drink and stuff. That's just real. Just enjoy that shit. Uh, that said, uh, fucking soundtrack fucking rules. Uh, theme song is done by Iggy Pop. Alex Cox visited Iggy Pop personally at his apartment to explain the movie to him and request that he do the song for the soundtrack. At this point in Iggy's career, he was going through a bit of a rough patch. <laughs> <laughs> He's had ups and downs. Yeah, prompted in part by the singer's wild lifestyle, and he needed some money and breathing space. It also helped that Cox gave Iggy carte blanche, do whatever he wanted with the song. And uh, um, his band, the band Fear, appears on the soundtrack. Fear is one of the best uh, L.A. punk bands. They're kind of responsible for the sound of L.A. hardcore because they started out really like 77, and then other bands kind of copied them. Uh, most famously, Normies listening to the podcast will maybe be familiar with them from their performance on Halloween night on Saturday Night Live in like 1981. Yeah, right. Do you think anybody listening to this podcast would watch Saturday Night Live in 1981? I don't know. It's maybe like four, maybe four. It's four. kind of part of Zeitgeist, I guess. They're a band immediately. <laughs> like, all right, go and they start performing. And Lorne Michaels is like, oh, oh get out of here! Good golly! Yeah, I can't do Lorne Michaels. Yeah, you get to see a very young uh, Ian McKay there as well. He's like jumping on stage and stuff from Minor Threat and Fugazi, Fugazi. But. uh yeah, anyways, leaving lead singer of that band of Fear was originally considered for the role of Bud, but he didn't get to do it. It went to Harry Dean Stan. <laughs> well, because Harry Dean threatened someone with a baseball bat. <laughs> yeah, he knew he, it was a real one because Harry Dean only uses real bats. Well, that's the thing is Alex Cox wanted to be a great director, and you know what makes great directors great? They let it's Harry difficult Dean Stan, actors. No, they let Harry Dean Stan do whatever the fuck he wants. <laughs> Aside from E Pop and Fear, we have the legendary LA punk bands Black Flag, Suicidal Tendencies, Circle Jerks, and The Plugs. They are the uh, the Plugs are one of the first Latino punk bands. Uh, they do like the there's a couple of songs in the movie, but then also like the actual like soundtrack, you know that like kind of jangly surf guitar that they oh, use a lot. That? That's the Plugs, yeah. Oh, cool! They did a really good job with that. Yeah, I love the Plugs. Uh, I also love suicidal tendencies. I think I said before, like, uh, when we did the Rock and Roll High School episode, I was saying, like, the early, like, punk stuff in New York and UK and stuff, aside from the clash, never really resonated that much with me. And I was more into the hardcore scenes that developed out of it. Uh, of course, I always have affinity more for the Bay Area bands just because of that weird identitarian thing where, like, you love the Warriors just because that's where you were born. 
or whatever. <laughs> um, I LA hardcore scene is really cool to me. I like it a lot because, uh, especially because these are like tough bands, like kind of from the street. Not so much the Circle Jerks, but <clears throat> Suicidal Tendencies, gang affiliated and shit. They're part of like the punk gang shit in the eighties. I know that's not necessarily a healthy thing to be interested in, but it's fun to uh, uh, think about and learn about. So, uh, yeah, this is more so my style of punk is what I'm saying. You know, we to talk about uh, the Ramones and Rock and Roll High School. and <laughs> I like the Ramones pop songs about, like, holding hands and wanting girls around and stuff because I have uh, romantic emotional feelings a lot of the time. But um, I don't know. Like, when I listen to punk, I like more aggressively political, sometimes violent and confrontational stuff. You want more of an edge on your punk rock. I just like confrontational art in general, I think. But, you know, sometimes you just want to sit there and tell a girl that you want her around. (laughs) I want you around. I have to think, like, Dee Dee wrote that song because to me that seems like such like a heroin addict, like, style of love. (laughs) I just (laughs) want you around, man. Yeah. Because it always seems like you just got, like, your teammate, right? I guess that's love in general, though, is you just got a partner. But I don't know. (laughs) I want you around. Because he doesn't talk about going out to dinner or any like extravagant romance or anything it's just like you want to hang out <laughs> <laughs> it's true was was that one of the ones dd wrote though i have so many covers too it's hard to, for me i to don't know that. i just assume dd wrote most of the songs dd or joey yeah. and then it's hard to know for their like half of their discography because they used to just written by the remotes according to the documentary a texas tale of treason Cox wrote a sequel to Repo Man, which, though filming started, was never finished. Chris Did Bones. Harry Dean Stan sting a storm off the set? God damn it. Know. If Harry Dean Stan can't shoot real bullets into a man, <laughs> Harry Dean Stan quits. Damn it. <laughs> also, rest in peace, Harry Dean Stanton. Also, rest in peace, fucking uh, Lil Richard. Oh, God. Corona's getting everybody. <laughs> well, just, last week we watched uh, Predator, which has the classic scene in the helicopter where they're listening to Long Tall Sally by mm. Little Richard, and then he died, so we killed him. No, I didn't kill him. You killed him. I don't it, think the movies. It was the magic of VHS cult. Oh, God, I killed Little Richard. The, what are you going to kill this week, then? I don't know. At least he made it way longer than Elvis, though, that fucking hack. Uh, Chris Bones saw the script on Cox's website and asked and received permission to adapt the script into a graphic novel. The book, Waldo's Hawaiian Holiday, was released in March 2008 by Gestalt Media. Gestalt. Gestalt. I'm going to try to find this book. And on December 3rd, 2008, a sequel was reported to be going into development with the working title Repo Chick. The story would be set in 2008 and the resulting boom in repossession that extends far beyond cars and homes. The bulk of the film was shot in front of a green screen with backgrounds filmed and composited in during post-production. Uh, I hate it already. I don't know. I'm going to watch it. I, I feel like it might work with Alex Cox because that's like uh, Mighty Boosh, how they used to do just back projection for a lot of their sets in like the second season. It always looked really cool. So I have faith in like a true artiste being able to utilize it in some way. Uh, Universal sent Cox a cease and desist notice because he does not possess the rights to do an official sequel. But he ignored it since this film uses none of the characters from the original. And then the film premiered on September 8th at the Venice Film Festival. Fuck you, Universal. <laughs> <laughs> That's Plus, nice. Yeah, he doesn't have any of the same characters. It doesn't have the same title. So it's like, well, you can't do anything, really. And uh, f- one final quote, a sad quote from Mr. Cox. He says, I'm pretty much defeated at this stage. 
this was in 2011 when his ultra low budget sequel to the film Repo Chick came out. The studios, it's like a type of card game where you don't even get Delta Hand. How can you play in that game? The studios have won. I, I mean, that's how it goes. He spent his whole career after Walker, as we stated, kind of working outside of the studio system, working as hard as he could, trying to get made what he could get made. And to 2011, he had to give up because the studio system had won. Coincidentally, the height of the Marvel era. Not coincidentally at all. Correlation. <laughs> Correlation. So, I don't know. I feel like the height of the Marvel era was probably 2016. I've, when did fucking Infinity War come out? I think that was probably their height. That was 2016, I think. Was it? No, I thought it was only two years ago or some shit. I don't know. It was like, they haven't, well, maybe it was 2017. I don't know. All right. No, anyways, my point is, um, I agree with them, obviously. I do think the studio system has won out, or corporation has won out, like most aspects of uh, culture and society we live in now. It's all uh, happily controlled by a few corporations, and if they have got to let you in, and if they don't let you in, that's that's that. Obviously, good movies still get made. Um, there's independently financed movies and shit. Technically, The Irishman is an indie movie, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, technically it is. But when you're Martin Scorsese, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's easy to get funding from your friends and shit and stuff like that. Yeah, it's different. So uh, I'm just saying the heyday of independent film is long gone, and all you can look forward to is uh, an endless Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey, yeah, endless the Wolfman, endless drip feed of licensed products, merchandise, Comic Con, fucking sucking farts out of CEOs <laughs> Frankenstein asses. versus King Kong. Yeah, like I said, though, if Marvel hops on Marvel vs. Godzilla, I'm back in. <laughs> 110%. No questions asked. I give up all my politics. No reservations. Yeah, no politics, no beliefs anymore. Nihilism now. I, only, I just like trash cinema. <laughs> I want to see Thor punch Godzilla in the face. <laughs> he's fucking, he'd go inside Godzilla with the hammer. He fly down his gullet. <laughs> And then part of the movie will be uh, Thor having to fight off like his uh, <laughs> justice <laughs> system. And I bought him the shit. Thor yeah. having a body adventure inside Godzilla. Yeah, he's fighting like white blood cells and shit. <laughs> awesome. Oh, we're pitching it. <laughs> yep. So Repo Man. Still think it's a good movie. Definitely worth watching. It is a great little um, counterculture gem from the 80s. Uh, a lot of the, the praise it's received does absolutely still hold up. I just have a problem with the, the, the philosophy of the movie a little bit because, I don't know, I guess I'm just a little bitch for punk rock. Yeah, you little the, bitch. A little bitch for the punk culture I grew up in where, man, people believed in things. A lot, a lot of people didn't, to be honest. No, that's just like anything. A lot of no it one was, listens to the fucking lyrics. Yeah, a lot of it was more, in my personal experiences, like just being in a different type of gang almost. So, you know, people were in it for various reasons and stuff. However, I think when you're trying to use the punk movement as um, a sort of weapon in an artistic format, like in a film, you should be more loyal to the well-reported existing belief systems that existed with that artistic movement at the time. Not me. I think it's especially... I I think it's especially jarring how nihilistic the movie is when the soundtrack is the LA hardcore scene. Which they were very irreverent, right? Like Black Black Flag Steve party. They were a lot of times they were just having fun and enjoying like the trashy elements of culture and stuff. But they 
had strong political beliefs. I don't think they'd turn to anyone and be like, oh, none of your problems are society's fault. It's just because you suck, which is a weird belief to have. <laughs> that's Repo Man for you. Yeah, next week. And that's nihilism. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, well, nihilism sucks. There's Speaking of nihilism and uh, your problems being no fault of society, next week we shall watch Heathers. Heathers? Yes. Is it a movie about people named Heather? Yeah, there's two Heathers in it. We got one other writer who plays Heather, and we got um, uh, Shannon Doherty. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I forgot yeah. she was in that. Well, the Heathers are actually uh, Shannon Doherty, Lisa Ann Falk, and then one other writer is Veronica, who's, I think, I don't remember the movie too well. Whatever. It's got Christian Slater in it, too. Oh, Jack Nicholson? Uh, babe Jack Nicholson. <laughs> hey, I'm here, me broken arrow. You know who is uh, who else is in it? No, Renee Estevez. <gasps> oh man, yeah. I chose this one just because I don't think we watched the Winona movie yet, and I love Winona. I was thinking the other because I watched, we watched Alien and Aliens with the kids, but I think Sigourney Weaver should have been in Stranger Things over uh, Winona. Fuck that, Winona rules. I'm still on it. Remember when she got caught shoplifting and it really derailed her career? <laughs> and she's like, I just like the thrill of it. That fucking rules. Well, no rules, man. Can't, they should have been. Does like, it rule, or is it a sign of like a serious compulsion? Like that's a. You know I don't know. Like, like fuck, I, I'm into it. <laughs> You're into weird shit, though. Yeah. So what? Well, no one's my type of gal, then, I guess we can <laughs> hang out and party. Uh, yeah, we watched Heather's. It'd be good when no one's in it. I don't think I've seen it since I was pretty young. But I, I know Winona's in it and like Winona, so Winona forever, as uh, Johnny Depp's tattoo used to say. Yeah, this is Wino forever. <laughs> he loves wine. He spends millions of dollars on it. He, he spent all his, his Pirates of the Caribbean money on it. He's like, Let's, I need some wine. Let's make another Pirate of the Caribbean movie. Hell yeah. Fucking, I, I, I don't know if I've ever pitched you. I have an idea for a Pirates of the Caribbean movie. I have one too, but it involves Captain Hook. Captain Hook? Oh, that... I don't know why they never went for that before, actually. That's what I'm fucking talking about. Holy shit. That's a pretty good idea. Damn. Oh, man. They can get stuck in Neverland. Holy shit. Right. It makes so much sense. This is a fucking good idea. Almost as good as Marvel vs. Godzilla. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> We're generating too many ideas for Disney right now. Mm -hmm. Give me Kevin you know Feige. Stranger Things is so bad that I kind of, like, forget one of the writers in it. <laughs> like even when I'm watching it it's like that doesn't seem like Monona to me <laughs> alright yeah we watched Heather's next time and then this time we watched Repo Man everyone watch it and then next time everyone watch Heather's and then on and on we'll do that forever until the heat death of the universe uh, which is I think in about two months no two months it won't be the heat death of the universe but it'll probably be like uh, the plague that ends all of mankind but you know what? I'm gonna go out kissing. If I'm gonna get diseases and stuff, I'm gonna get some kisses. No, that's how you get more diseases. If I'm gonna get it anyways, oh, I you know, we didn't talk about this. Get week. it through kisses. We didn't talk about um, uh, Michael Jordan and the Last Dance. The oh, Last Dance. I keep cutting it out. If like, based on like the last three or four episodes, if I <laughs> we left should do a in, Last Dance podcast. I was wishing I like left the. I wish I like saved the clips because I think we at this point we'd have like a three hour <laughs> episode of us just talking about basketball. Did you, did you cut my Tony Kukoc impersonation because it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no Tony Kukoc. 
kids today don't understand. Basketball matters. Ball is life. Kids today do understand. They're always saying ball is life. Thanks, kids. You are kids. Alright, I guess that's it. That's VHS Cult. We will see you next week. Um, hit me up for some kisses. Bill Murray. <laughs> <laughs>